you're listening to Prairie Justice, a Greg Sanders Vigilante podcast. Well, good afternoon and welcome back to Prairie Justice, the Greg Sanders Vigilante podcast. Can you believe I'm almost three years into this podcast and I still have trouble remembering what the name of the podcast is? reason I say that, I look up on my track as I'm recording this, and I seem to have the uh, theme song track as the Prairie Lights intro. What the sweet... Well, let's just go past that. Well, well, indeed, welcome back to Prairie Justice, and today we're going to Googling another uh, tale from the golden age of comics, Action Comics 57, featuring the Vigilante in the feud of Rimfire Ridge. And I think you're going to like this one today. Uh, not too much news going on. Uh, things are pretty mellow uh, on the front. And I, I tr- continue to putter along trying to get uh, podcasts out here when I can. So I think with that, I'm just going to leave you towards into a new podcast promo. Uh leading to one of my good podcasting friends of mine and uh, we'll see you on the other side can i get a tall chai and a large black coffee and i suppose you're here with no agenda as per usual on the contrary i'm here for comics i think i can help all of you hello i'm the caffeinated clinton robison and i host a podcast called coffee, and comics. On this podcast, I summarize, review, and discuss comic book issues, stories, and related media, usually in the span of time it takes to have a cup of coffee. Sometimes I'm joined by a guest, and sometimes I'm flying solo. So pour the coffee, take a sip, and turn up the volume as you listen to the Coffee and Comics Podcast. Available on iTunes, Stitcher, and directly on coffeeandcomicspodcast.blogspot.com. And remember, this is where the comics are never too old, and the coffee is never too cold. Well, good afternoon, Mrs. Miss America. Let's go to press. Well, let's just go to Action Comics 57, uh, which debuted in... uh, December 16th, 1942. We're just about out of 1942 in our Vigilante stories. Um, The cover date on it, of course, is February 1943. So, uh, in that respect, we're already into a new year. Our cover is done by John Sakella. And, of course, it's a Superman story. And uh, with a scene that actually does somewhat uh, represents the story inside of it. And... uh, it involves the prankster, Bob Fisher's favorite villain, Not. And the story is called Crimes Comedy King. Now, as is most Golden Age uh, comics of this uh, time, it's a monthly, it's 10 cents, 64 pages. Our editor is Jack Schiff, and as I believe I said in the last time, we're, we have a new editorship here on Action Comics. Um, the Feud of Rimfire Ridge is going to be a 12-page story. The penciler is going to be Mort Meskin. The scripter is going to be God Only Knows, uh, but we're still going with that Mort Morton theory. And our anchor is a new fellow by the name of Charles Paris, and I believe he needs a little bit of explanation. Now, Charles Paris seems to have an even career with DC as an anchor, mostly. I don't see any credits as an artist or any other uh, form. Uh, Starts in 1940, ends, last credits are in 1970. Uh, We'll see him on Vigilante from time to time over Meskin, but he seems to be one of Jack Lady's go-to anchors on the Crimson Avenger, in detective comics and while he's in detective and in world's finest he seems to do a little bit of work on uh, airwave as well the golden age airwave and reunites with meskin from time to time in more fun comics with on johnny quick 
He also works on Manhunter, Batman, Detective Comics, and goes all through the 1950s on all sorts of uh, things. Uh, seems to be a regular guy on Batman from time to time uh, through the 1950s. And his last credit as an anchor was the Mardi Gras mystery in 1970 from Detective Comic, or sorry, Batman number 223. And there he's over to, uh, penciling over top of Jack Burnley. So that's a good Golden Age couple. So, um, so I, I believe uh, Mort's going to have a, a good steady hand on the tiller in this story. And by the way, uh, these statistics are all thanks to Mike's Amazing World. And uh, I don't know what podcasters or other fans would do without uh, Mike Hoyles and his incredible website. Uh, the Action Comics 57 also features, uh, besides uh, Vigilante's warm-up act, Superman, we have the three aces, who of course are in uh, World War II mode. Mr. America doing his uh, America Commando thing. And Congo Bill and Zatara. So uh, I'm not going in and talking about these stories as much as I used to. I'm just trying to streamline the show a bit into getting into the action on the drama. And in that regard, I'm going to introduce our characters that we're going to see. Uh, of course, stuff's going to be here. We're going to be seeing some goons by the name of Louie, Digger, and Pinky, who of course have no further appearances as most 1940s goons don't. And one of the, for some reason, uh, Louie is also being called Dogface by uh, one of the other gangsters. So there seems to be a little bit more of confusion as to uh, what we're naming these gangsters, but they're just stock characters. Uh, we're also going to meet uh, Earl Simmons, who's a hotel keeper in a place where uh, Greg Saunders decides to head for a little vacation. And we're going to be seeing the characters of Dave Standish and Betsy Hatton, a young betrothed couple. Uh, Jack Standish, who is Dave's uncle. And Tom Hatton, who is Betsy's brother. And uh, that should tell you as we get into our... Uh, West Virginia country along the Ohio River that we're going to have a standard callback to a very historic epic and I'll talk to you about a little bit more than that after the drama and I think that's about all I got to say here on this and uh, so enjoy the feud of Rimfire Ridge as Greg Saunders heads into the Appalachians into West Virginia, Mountain Mama. Life is old there, older than the trees. Almost heaven, growing like a weed. Vigilante by Mort Jr. and Charlie. Under the guise of a grim, spectral-headed vigilante, Betsy Hatton tries to prevent her lover, Dave Standish, from shooting Tom Hatton. Tom Hatton, I'm gonna shoot you dead. When a half-forgotten feud flares afresh in a wild mountain community, gangster pistols thunder in ears attuned to the whip-crack echoes of squirrel rifles. But the hard-hitting vigilante as formidable a foe of villainy in the lonely hills as in the sagebrush country of his birth, wields western wits and weapons to rescue a boy and a girl from heartbreak and blast open the cunning crime plot behind the feud of Rimfire Ridge. A strange way for two people to start an adventure by saying goodbye, but that's the way it is. So long, stuff. Don't feel badly about my not taking you on this trip to the mountains. Here, here, Greg. Have a high time in them thar hills and don't needle your noodle about me. All aboard! Now, don't go getting into any trouble just because I'm not around to keep an eye on you. Trouble? Me? 
Are you kidding? Greg Sanders, famed on the radio as the Prairie Troubadour, cannot rid himself of uneasy misgivings as the train rolls southward. I feel guilty about taking this vacation at Rimfire Ridge while the Chinatown kid stays behind. I hope he doesn't get too bored. Bored? No, indeed. For as the train crawls slowly through the yards at the city limits. Ugh, made it. Yeah, I'll just crawl into this old mail sack. When the conductor peeks in, I'll be a pig in a poke. And Greg will be proud when he finds out all the hardships I put up with so as I could go look out for him. Or will he? Oh well, no use worrying till we get to Rimfire Ridge. But I gotta be on hand, cause that guy's always getting into trouble. Presently, a ventilator grating atop the express car is pried open to admit a truculent looking trio of fellows. Stowaways. Make it fast, Digger. Someone spots us, we'll get to boot. I guess it's better than riding in the back of the tender. You said it, we. Now we can talk without eating cinders. Dogface, you're the only one who knows this hillbilly guy we're gonna work for. You sure he's okay? I'm telling you, he'll pay off as soon as he gets what he's after. What a setup. We bump off a guy to get an old mountain feud started, and then everybody taken thinks we're just taking a little vacation in Rimfire Ridge. Well, well, listen to this. It's a good thing little stuff came along to turn the heat on these babies. Look out, stuff. Another second and that cigarette will be putting the heat on you. Help, I'm stabbed. What did we tell you? That's Coppa's. Coppa's nothing. Sounds like a kid. No speak English. Hey, point that cannon the other way. Hey, you won't speak no language after Pinky plugs ya. On second thought, I won't. I got a better scheme. First, we change the address and send it back to us. Then we knock the brat cold and collect him at the station. We plug him out in the hills and the law thinks he got cooled off in the feud. Pinky, you's a genius. You better let me go. I'm the vigilante's right-hand man. <laughs> Listen to the twerp dream it up. Yes, and the mighty vigilante is trying to dream it up too. What a beautiful country. I'm just going to relax, forget all about radio, and all about catching crooks. You see, the Prairie Troubadour, who in times of trouble becomes the vigilante, is on vacation from both his jobs. Rimfire Ridge, a West Virginia whistle stop high in the Blue Ridge Mountains. Not fancy, but just what I want. No autograph hunters, no gangsters. All I'm gonna do for a week is sleep. Yep, stranger. My name's Earl Simmons, and I come back to the old hometown to take over the hotel when my uncle died. I suppose you want a room all to yourself. Yes, and with the bath if you have such a thing. Washing up in his room, Greg does not see three men carrying a heavy sack through the main street. Out of the way, Pooch. Ain't we gonna stay in the hotel, Pinky? Nah. The boss has got a cabin on the edge of town fixed up so we can have privacy. But sounds of strife reach his ears nevertheless. Cut it out, you crazy mutt. Huh? Not so peaceful after all. And that doesn't sound like a mountaineer talking. Yipe! Look at me! Help! A boy's voice. It sounds like... No. It couldn't be. Oh, I scared you much. Five. I guess I'll put it back to sleep. <sighs> Looks like the old vigilante is going for an airing. Supple Lariat. Sharp spurred riding boots. 
holstered six guns that have saved countless lives without ever taking one. These are the weapons of the lawman of the Old West. Formidable weapons when wielded by an expert. Seconds later, a masked figure drops lightly from a rear window of the Grand Hotel. They're headed toward the edge of town. Soon afterward... Mmm. This brat weighs a ton. How much further, Pinky? We're almost there. You boys are heading for the last roundup. Why? It's the vigilante. So you're the tough guy who slugs youngsters to sleep. Ow! You've got to be quicker on the trigger than that, you sidewinding diamondback. Uh, why didn't I stay in the big town? I thought the kid was bluffing when he said he was the vigilante's pal. Oof! I'm falling! What? It's really stuff? Look out! Down, down, plunges the unconscious boy. Stuff, he hasn't got a chance. It's a sheer drop of over a hundred feet. I ought to throw you after him, and I may do exactly that if I find him dead. Nearest way down I could find without smashing myself up. This rock, it's exactly like some I've seen out west, but there's no time to waste on it now. The end of his long search along the mountain stream reveals only the sack he was in, but he's vanished. He must have fallen into the stream and been swept away. Gone. The little pal who always stuck by me, no matter how tough the going. And he's dead, because I tried to leave him behind. I should have known he'd find a way to follow. At the top of the cliff. Gone. I was so worried about stuff I charged down the cliff. I should have hogtied those killers. But I'll track them down if it takes the rest of my life. But at the end of a fruitless day of searching. I'll sneak in and change back to street clothes. Maybe I can learn something about those rats around town. What has happened to the tough little Chinatown kid? Now let us go back to early afternoon and meet a happy young couple that we missed earlier. Listen, Betsy, honey. A shot. Wouldn't it be terrible if... If our family, the Hattons and the Standages, took to feuding again? Don't be silly, Dave. The old folks settled their quarrel five years ago, and now we're going to be married. Sunbon's hurt. Groaning. A boy. And he's hurt bad. Carry him to our cabin. It's closest. A city boy. Wonder how come he was in that sack. Reckon he's in bad shape. I'll run ahead and fix a place to put him in. I'll go hunt for my Uncle Jack. He read a doctor book once. If only my brother Tom was here. But Dave is not the only one hunting for Uncle Jack Standish, for on the mountainside nearby... That's Jack Standish. The bus described him to me. Oh, I'd feel better if we was bumping off the vigilante instead of this yoikle. Ah! Minutes later... Uncle Jack, he's dead. And he didn't have an enemy in the world. Nobody would do a thing like this, unless... That's it. Tom Hatton, Betsy's brother. He's starting up the old family feud again. But I'll finish it. Soon as I get my gun. Vendetta, the code of the hills. Primitive rules of mountain honor demand a life for a life and hot-blooded kinsmen of the slain seldom delay in exacting vengeance. The wedding is off, Betsy Hatton. Your brother Tom killed my Uncle Jack, and I'm uh, going to kill him. Dave Standish, don't you mean it? There's some awful mistake. Dave, he's gone, and he'll kill Tom. 
and my family will kill him, and it won't end until all of us are dead. Oh, I've got to find a way to stop it. Where am I? Gosh, lady, why the open floodgates? You wouldn't understand. The man I was going to marry is going to kill my brother because somebody killed his uncle. Eh, you ain't making any sense. But wait, wait a minute. Yes, you are, too. Them crooks who snatched me off the train. They were going to kill somebody to start a feud. Why, if you're right, then we can prevent a terrible crime. Meanwhile, Greg Sanders is learning little that is helpful and nothing at all that is encouraging. Where does that stream go, do you say? Nobody knows, Sanders. It gets swallowed up in the mountain a couple of miles from here and don't never show above ground again. Oh, by the way, would it be an easy job trying to find someone hiding in the hills? Nope. Men have been lost out there for years, and the revenue officers never do find most of the moonshine stills. Mm. Guess I'll turn in. Good night, Simmons. Presently. You got a bird named Sanders here, mister? I gotta find him fast. My son, he just went up to room 13. What's happening? Massacre's happening, that's what. A guy named Standish stopped the slug, and they say it's only the beginning. Massacre? This is terrible. Don't be sore, because I'm here, Greg. I got big business on the fire for the vidge. Stuff? Is it, is it really you? Swiftly, Stuff relates his adventures on the train. That was their scheme, see? To bump off guys in one family and have it blamed on the other family. So they must have bopped off this Jack Standish. It's as plain as day. Betsy Hatton is trying to find her brother before her boyfriend shoots him. Come on, out the back way. No time to waste indeed, for at that very moment... Tom Hatton, you killed my Uncle Jack, and I'm a gonna shoot you dead. Uh, what? You're crazy, Dave. Me and your Uncle Jack buried the hatchet long ago. Dave, wait! You've got to listen! A slender noose hissing like a snake through the air proves an effective argument against homicide. What a rope! Vigilante. You're lucky. Sometimes folks who start out to kill other folks wind up with ropes around their necks. You've saved my brother's life. I'm not sure who killed Jack Standish, but I seriously suspect three varmints who came here from the city for the purpose of starting a feud all over again. Right, Stuff? Check and double check. But why would anybody want us Standishes and Hattons banging away at each other again? That's one of the things I intend to find out. As the leading citizen of Rimfire Ridge, I'm going to help you. And soon... Just before you fell over the cliff stuff, they were heading for some place near here. Look, take a gander at that spot of light through the trees. You'll want to look out for guns, Vigilante. Hey, you look behind you. He ain't kidding. Hey, you fellers inside. Come out and see what I brung you. Nice going, boss. The Vigilante can help us a lot by dying. No shooting. There were others out hunting, huh? And they'd hear it. We'll shove these fellers off the cliff and folks will think they walked over in the dark. This time we'll go down and make sure that cooled poisoned. Forced to the brink of death, the vigilante and his young pal hesitate for a single tense second. I'm counting to three. If you don't jump, we'll plug you. One, two. Do we rush their cats, Vidge, or do we take it like a couple of sissies? Let's jump, stuff. Trust me. Now. So, so long, Vidge. Is this the end of the trail for the hard-pressed heroes? 
The answer lies in a gleaming bit of metal that rakes across the dead root of a tree, catches in the rotting wood, slips, and catches again on one of Vigilante's spurs. Gotcha. Um, but don't expect me to do this every day. Whatever you do, don't pinch me. If I'm dreaming, I don't want to wake up. A moment later, all our troubles is over. Yeah, over the cliff. <laughs> yeah, well, all we gotta do is keep the feud going. Suddenly, I got some feuding of my own to do. I'm seeing things. You won't be seeing anything in a minute. While you're seeing things, take a good look at this. Ow! Hello, how are you? Stick around, Simmons. Oh! Shortly. Those thugs killed your Uncle Jack, and Simmons put him up to it to get the Hat and Standish feud going again. That it wasn't, Tom. But why did you do it, Simmons? I'm not telling. I'll tell you. Going down the cliff today near where stuff fell, I found yellow veined rocks. That would be about the dividing line between our land and the Standishes. Then your two families are joint owners of a rich vein of gold. Simmons discovered it some way and planned to kill or drive you off so he could get the land cheap. And I would have if it hadn't been for you, Vigilante. And so it is that instead of a feud, Rimfire Ridge celebrates a wedding a few days later. It's all so perfect, Mr. Sanders, except for one thing. I wish your friend the Vigilante could have been here. I'm sure he's here in spirit, Miss Patton, or Mrs. Standish. Some folks put wedding cake under their pillows to sleep on. Ain't that silly? For the next high, wide, and handsome adventure of the valiant vigilante and his unpredictable partner stuff in the next issue of Action Comics by United States War Savings Bonds and Stamps. And now here to Greg Sanders Rodeo Radio, and I got a mountain classic here for you from the movies. Now, as we'll hear when I do the historical highlights, as I do my commentary after the song, uh, we are, of course, in our uh, rural areas that uh, had their issues with prohibitions from time to time. And I know in Western Canada, uh, we had two separate prohibitions, at, at least here in the province of Alberta. Uh, one in our Wild West phase between 1870 and 1896, as the federal government was trying to... Uh, uh, stop the whiskey trade from amongst the indigenous people, which uh, did and did not work very well. And uh, next in our settlement area, around uh, the time we were getting involved in World War I, from 1915 to 1923, the province of Alberta enacted another prohibition. And it was just about as uh, violent as anything that you could probably imagine that happened in any of the... Uh, the southern states as well during those same times and uh, I live not too far away from the Crow's Nest Pass region of Alberta and uh, it certainly had its wild times during the prohibition era of the late 19 teens to 1920s in fact uh, the last hanging of a woman in Alberta was over a prohibition war but with that uh, I'd like to just carry on and I'd like to give you that great recording star, Robert Mitchum. Robert Mitchum, yes, Robert Mitchum did record the song to his own movie, Thunder Road. Had nothing to do with Bruce Springsteen, but I'm sure Bruce took the uh, the title in, in bringing up his own tune later on. And so, uh, from that motion picture, uh, here's... Robert Mitchum with the song of the same name, Thunder Road. <laughs> 
Let me tell the story, I can tell it all About the mountain boy who ran a legal alcohol His daddy made the whiskey, son he drove the load When his engine roared, they called the highway thunder road Sometimes into Asheville, sometimes Memphis town The revenuers chased him, but they couldn't run him down Each time they thought they had him, his engine would explode He'd go by like they were standing still on Thunder Road And there was thunder, thunder over Thunder Road Thunder was his engine and white lightning was his load And there was moonshine, moonshine, fresh the devil's thirst The law they swore they'd get him, but the devil got him first On the 1st of April, 1954 The federal man sent word he'd better make his run no more He said 200 agents were covering the state Whichever road he tried to take, he'd get him sure his fate. Son, his daddy told him, make this run your last. Your tank is filled with hundred proof, you're all tuned up and gassed. Now don't take any chances, if you can't get through. I'd rather have you back again than all that mountain dew. And there was thunder, thunder over thunder road. Thunder was his engine and white lightning was his load. And there was moonshine, moonshine to quench the devil's thirst. The law they swore they'd get him, but the devil got him first. Roaring out of Harlan, revving up his mill. He shot the gap at Cumberland and screened by Maynardville. With T-Man on his taillight, roadblocks up ahead. The mountain boy took roads that even angels feared to tread. Blazing right through Knoxville, out on Kingston Pike. Then right outside of Bearden, there they made the fatal strike. He left the road at 90, that's all there is to say. The devil got the moonshine and the mountain boy that day. And there was thunder, thunder over Thunder Road. Thunder was his engine and white lightning was his load. And there was moonshine, moonshine, quenched the devil's thirst. The law they never got him, cause the devil got him first. Law they never got him, cause the devil got him first. Thunder, thunder, thunder. And now my comments on our story, The Feud of Rimfire Ridge. Well, this is an old story. Uh, how old? Well, it kind of goes back to Shakespeare, Romeo and Juliet. And uh, if you weren't sleeping during your uh, high school literature courses, you know that the story is basically is two families in which uh, that don't get along very well, but in which... A son and a daughter do find love and amongst themselves, and of course it ends in tragedy. Well, life often imitates art, and that takes us to the often imitated, including right here in this story, tale of the Hatfields and the McCoys. You may have seen movies, you may have seen cartoons, you may have even seen a game show called The Family Feud. So this whole idea of uh, two families and some star-crossed lovers in amongst uh, families that don't get along is an old theme and, of course, is based in history. So let's go right to the heart of where it all started and so we can cut through the mythology a little bit. It involved two American families in the mountainous regions of West Virginia and Kentucky, of course, across the river from each other by the, the, the Grand Ohio. Uh, but uh, this was a long feud. Believe it or not, it goes from the Civil War times right up to 1891. And uh, if you uh, saw one of the uh, recent uh, motion picture depictions of this, it the Hatfields of West Virginia were led by Devil Ants Hatfield. Actually, William Ants, 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 sorry, William Anderson Hatfield, but went by the uh, nickname of Devil Ants. And of course, he was portrayed in a recent History Channel uh, miniseries by Kevin Costner. So that should tell you that uh, Hollywood has mined this uh, quite often. 
and they were opposed by the McCoy family of Kentucky under the leadership of Randolph McCoy, who also went by a nickname of Old Rant. And uh, I guess this uh, these two families, actually their, their times went on back into the 1700s as uh, this area was settled from the east. Now, in the blood of the Civil War, apparently there was a Confederate Home Guard a regiment called the Logan Wildcats, of which Devil Lance Hatfield was a member at that point in time and apparently murdered a member of the McCoy family. So there was some bad blood going back a long ways. Now, let's just take this. Uh, you, you can look at all of this up. Uh, Wikipedia is a wonderful thing. And I'm sorry to use Wikipedia, but I'm not going to read you a book. Um, I believe it goes a little bit later on, about 13 years later in 1878. The Hatfields and McCoys get into it about a dispute about the ownership of, uh, wait for it, folks, a hog. I don't mean to ham this story up a bit. But sometimes... Uh, you know, like wars start over the silliest things. Now let's go back to 1891 when we get uh, a courtship going on in between uh, Rosanna McCoy and uh, Johnson Hatfield, who was Devil Ants' son. Now, this, this seems to be just nominally be gang warfare uh, many of the reasons they were shooting and killing each other between these two families had to do with moonshine it had to do with control over the uh, illicit liquor business um, as both families tried to uh, muscle in on territory as uh, Counties, you know, enacted their own prohibitions and uh, people were trying to make money. There's land involved. And, of course, uh, when you get true love involved into this, well, this becomes a, another complication as well. Well, the true love didn't uh, work out too well. As Rosanna McCoy was abandoned by Johns Hatfield, and that just seemed to plague things even more. There was a New Year's ma massacre in 1888, and uh, what they called the Battle of the Grapevine Creek between 1880 and 1891. And eventually, the uh, governments got into it the, of the states of West Virginia and Kentucky, and who even threatened to have militias invade each other's states to try to uh, establish peace between these families. Finally, there was uh, some trials held around 1888. Number of combatants sent to prison, and apparently, the uh, around about 1901, after the uh, the 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 death of Devil Lance, and finally the trial of his son, who was sentenced to life imprisonment for involvement in the New Year's massacre, the feud stopped. Now, it did come together again. The Hatfields and McCoys had a little bit of a rivalry up again in 1979. And that was available for everyone to see on their TV sets as they were opposing forces on a taping of the game show Family Feud. Of which, of course, the name itself was a pun named after the the, uh, the Hatfields and the McCoys. And, of course, as you recall, there was a sort of a bluegrassy, jazzy theme to that uh, popular game show. I'm not a game show guy myself, so I can't say that I ever watched the, uh, the end of the family feud. And apparently, um, the Hatfield family won more money, $11,000 to the McCoys, $8,000, and a decision was made that they would augment the winnings to equal portions of $11,273.37. So that was probably the, uh, the end of the Hatfields and McCoys. And apparently there are museums that you can go to in West Virginia and Kentucky, uh, a project called the Hatfield and McCoy Historic Site Restoration, 
that you can visit. Now, I've been to this area of the country, but uh, I guess I had no opportunity to probably to, to get to either of these sites. And uh, so far, there is no eruption uh, between the two families, who, but they seem to uh, do a bit of merchandising in their respect over the historic memory of this, uh, this feud. Now, of course, Hollywood has just loved this. Uh, I, I can't think of Hatfields and McCoys without thinking of Bugs Bunny. Promenade around the room, promenade like an old raccoon. And, of course, all sorts of cartoons, uh, books. Now, one of the things that I saw in a very good documentary on PBS uh, American Experience a few years ago, there was a, a lady that uh, sort of took exception to the popular view of this, this feud, that it led to uh, a lot of sensationalism in newspapers and a lot of stereotyping of rural people of that area in what we call quote hillbillies unquote and so there was a there's been a bit of a sociology work done on this as well and several books I can't say I've ever read any of them um, but of course there like I said there was also the uh, the Hatfields and McCoys uh, History Channel uh, miniseries and I believe there was a 1975 TV movie that starred Jack Palance and um, Steve Forrest as the uh, patriarchs of the opposing forces. So you can probably check that out on YouTube. I can't say that I have actually found it on there, but I'm going to have a look on it at any rate. There's uh, no end of depictions of this, and of course it's been a become a common theme like I said all stemming back to Romeo and Juliet of all things so if things sound differently I came, seem to keep cutting myself off on my track so I have to re-record this and uh, this is my take four because I keep forgetting to put my microphone back down uh, Dave Standish is standing here with his squirrel gun at the uh, head of the uh, splash page. Of course, we always have symbolism, as Golden Age stories are wont to do. Uh, with his uh, barrel of his squirrel gun pointed at the chest of Tom Hatton, his future brother-in-law, who's standing there with patches on his britches. And uh, Betsy is trying to pull him off from, of course, making this fatal mistake. And overseeing all of this is a very large spectral disembodied head of the vigilante himself, all in baby blue. So it's sort of a Mort Meskin's symbolism of the story ahead. And stuff was not no longer to be seen. The threat to shoot him died. Well, that really basically tells us that... Uh, we're going to have a little bit of cartoon stereotyping of rural folk. But that also brings us to Greg Saunders as he and stuff are in a railroad station, I assume, in New York City. And it looks like Greg is going to take a vacation without stuff. Basically tells him, goes, you know, uh, Greg, uh, stuff, don't get in any trouble. I need some time off. And, uh, to, to, to be fair, you know, let's face it, Greg's been uh, doing a lot of work with the uh, All-Star Squadron and the Seven Soldiers of Victory in his own feature, not to mention having a country music career, and he just wants to get away from it all, and for some reason he chooses this random town in West Virginia and is going to take a very leisurely train ride along to it. Well, Stuff doesn't know the word meaning of leisurely, and he jumps into a mail sack in the express car. And wouldn't you know it, a couple of some goons are going to have the same idea to try to get to this same town. Well, they finally uh, stumble upon each other through an errant cigarette butt. And stuff, of course, is taken kidnapping. But uh, Greg doesn't know about it yet. But he's at the other end of the train. And finally gets to... Uh, 
the town of Rimfire Ridge in West Virginia. Very nice, peaceful little town. Carries his bags over to a hotel where he meets a uh, short, bald man with a long handlebar mustache by the name of Earl Simmons. And Earl, I always imagine having the voice of William Conrad. Cannon. Um, the gangsters, as they carry stuff right in the mailbag, um, show you that they are very nasty people by kicking a dog, which gets Greg's attention. Um, Greg realizes that uh, stuff is in the bag when he hears him cry out. And uh, this very, very quickly gets the story rolling. You know, normally we have uh, stuff stumbling upon a crime, which he is going to, which he has heard that these gangsters have been hired to get an old blood feud going in this town. But uh, normally he has to go and find Greg. But uh, in this, Greg has found him. So Greg gets into his togs, and by the way, what hat is he wearing? He is wearing a tan Stetson this time. Seems to be a very, very wide brim. So I guess Greg is expecting some sun out here on the Ohio. Well, in the ensuing battle that happens out into the country, uh, stuff, bag and all, gets thrown over a cliff and into the river on a sheer drop of 100 feet. Well, Vidge abandons the gangsters, heads down to the river and can't find a sign of stuff anywhere, even though he does find the mailbag. So he heads back into town, assumes that he's dead. And, of course, the gangsters have gotten lost. And he's beating himself up pretty bad. He's back in his room. And then we are introduced to Betsy and Dave again. All very, very worried that uh, as they go to get married that uh, the feud might start all over again. When what do they happen along but a crying stuff. And continuity problems here, folks. On page 6, Day Vigilante has found the mail sack. But on page 7, the mail sack is here again with stuff in it. And I guess uh, we are led to believe, if I want to no-prize this, that page 7 actually takes place before page 6. So, pacing issues, it's very difficult. Uh, stuff is taken back to Betsy's place. Um, uh, she puts him stuff into bed to recover. And Dave decides that he's going to go look for his Uncle Jack. Because Uncle Jack read a doctor book once. Well, he's ready to work in the uh, province of Alberta Health Department now. Uh, a little bit editorializing, folks. Well, the gangsters happen to come along that Uncle Jack. More pacing issues here. Jack is shot dead. Uh, which Dave comes along, jumps to conclusions, uh, puts two and two together, comes up with 376 and decides that Jack has been shot by Betsy's brother Tom. Which, of course, leads uh, Dave to come back, grab his squirrel gun, and tell Betsy that the wedding's off and that he's going to run and, uh, and go kill brother Tom. And, of course, that leaves Betsy to water work on stuff's uh, back. Now, stuff is dressed in white shorts, a red striped t-shirt, and he's got his red sailor's hat or pagoda hat. Now, at this point, we're back at the hotel. Greg assumes stuff is dead, is using Simmons to uh, try and detective his way out and Simmons tells him goes well nobody don't bother uh, Saunders uh, up there in the mountain when people disappear they never get found again but stuff manages to run into town and he finds Simmons and he finds Greg in his room 
Well, as this tearful reunion comes together, uh, they realize stuff informs Greg that they've got a feud to stop. Um, they stop Dave from um, shooting Tom at uh, gunpoint. And along the point, uh, the gangsters show up and Earl Simmons tips his hand that he has hired the gangsters to come here to get the blood feud going. Um, stuff and Vidge are sands a death trap, but they are thrown and forced to jump off of a cliff at gunpoint. Uh, Dave McElvaney, if you're listening, and I know you are, guess what saves Vidge and stuff? Of course, his spur gets into a tree root, and he manages to grab uh, stuff, uh, Flying Grayson style, they, they uh, slowly climb up the cliff as Simmons and the gangsters have assumed they've been killed. And we have Fighty Fighty McFighty McFightstein. The gangsters and Simmons are defeated. Uh, the thugs killed your Uncle Jack. And why did you do it, Simmons? Simmons isn't going to tell. But Vigilante knows. He's been down on that river and he's seen the gold deposits. This man's from the West. He understands what gold looks like. Well then, two families are joint owners of a rich yen of gold. Simmons planned to kill or drive you all off so he could get the land cheap. And of course, keep the gold for himself. And it would have gotten away with it, too, hadn't it been for you nosy vigilantes. And we end last panel at a very happy ending. And hopefully the Standish Hatton feud is over for good as stuff helps himself to a mouthful of wedding cake, as he is wont to do. Uh, the artwork really tells the story well but I've, I've just kind of sort of felt there was a pacing issue I was a little confused there between page six and seven and again at page eight as we seem to have simultaneous events happening and uh, I guess it's very difficult to figure out what order you're going to uh, show something when you have someone hear a gunshot over a hill and then show what is actually happening uh, who's been shot and who's doing it. And of course the uh, the missing stuff thing really, really confused me with the mail sack. I think we could have jumbled those panels together a little bit, but I Mark Meskin, you know what? Don't don't get up out of your grave. You don't need to do it for me. I figured it out. I don't need a crisis to uh, straighten the story out. Uh, it's kind of a nominal little story. Um, there's no master plans. There's no named villains. Um, Earl Simmons just seems to be a small town goon who has come upon a, uh, a get rich quick scheme and used some gangsters to do it. And I think, Earl, you probably could have handled this on your own. Interesting thing about this um, had Greg not gone to this town and had stuff not errantly followed him we wouldn't have stumbled upon this plot at all in fact if stuff hadn't gotten into the mail sack on the express car he wouldn't have met the gangsters he wouldn't have tumbled to the whole plot and greg might have uh might have sat in his hotel room the whole time and not understand what was going on so uh, greg uh, and vigilante they're they're he's a little dopey in this but uh, I do like to see that he managed to get a vacation now and then. You know, it's just a war, Vigilante. Don't worry. Don't kill yourself. So that's a very nominal little 12-page story, and that's about all I have to say about it. Before I start feedback, I'd just like to have a big shout-out to my good buddy Alan Middleton, the professor, for playing my promo on his uh, one of his recent shows uh, if you don't know the professor has actually started a new podcast or I should say a new podcast with a new title is probably more accurate it's still on the old feed so if you were on the uh, 
the feed with uh, the professor's other relatively geeking, relatively geeky feed. That seems hard to say. Um, you will still be able to receive the new f uh, program that he calls the eyes and ears of Alan. So it seems to be uh, sort of things uh, that do pique the interest of his lordliness of Latveria. I mean, the professor of of Ohio. And uh, whether that is uh, other comics or other media, such as uh, movies or books and such. So look out for the eyes and ears of Alan. And, uh, yep, as I said, if you're already on the Relatively Geeky feed, you've probably heard this already. So uh, good on you here, Lord Doom. Hail Doom. And now listener feedback to episode 44, which was our rundown of Action Comics 56, The Melody of Menace. And as all as usual, the roll call is answered by Super Dave McIlvaney. Greetings, Ranger Gord. As always, it's good to hear you back in my headphones with another vigilante adventure. Your voice acting is always a treat, and I especially enjoyed your portrayal of Humming Hank Harkness. Holy Stan Lee style alliterative character named Batman. Interesting that Pete Sanger decides that threatening Hank's life is the best way to motivate him to write a hit song. No pressure there. Good for Stuff and Hank for trying to fight off the bad guys. While it was a bit disappointing that Vidge didn't use his amazing spurs, I liked that he used a sandblaster rather than his six-shooter in this adventure. Thank you, too, for featuring Buffy St. Marie in your musical segment. I haven't heard her voice in ages, and it was good to hear it again. I mostly remember her as part of the folk music in the early 1960s, and there was also something in her voice that has appealed to me, even when I was fairly young. Yes, Dave, uh, the early 60s, uh, the folk scene, you know, as, as uh, you, <laughs> you yanks, as I put it, uh, would know it, had a fair amount of Canadians uh, down there in it, as as you probably know, of course, I talk a lot about Ian Tyson and his wife, Sylvia, who recorded as Ian and Sylvia. Uh, Joni Mitchell, Buffy St. Marie, as I say, I believe there was Gordon Lightfoot and um, oh, the other one I'm trying to remember, Leonard Cohen, of course. So quite a few Canadians down on that scene. And of course, uh, you know, as the years go by, we're losing quite a bit of them. Uh, we lost uh, Cohen a few years ago. And just within the past few months, we've lost both Ian Tyson and uh, Gordon Lightfoot. And uh, every now and then, I just uh, always have to make a check-in on Joni Mitchell because sometimes I've heard his her health is not too good either. So, But anyway, I'm glad you remember them, Dave. T to get back to your letter, sorry. I understand your wish to avoid copyright entanglements, and I think your approach makes good sense. You seem to be trying to respect the work and the rights of creators while still being trying to be true to the musical ideas in the original stories with a main character who is a popular musical performer. Maybe it helped that Stuff, at least, was written as a not very good singer. And Hank was a songwriter rather than a big-time performer. I've listened to many songwriters who are talented writers but don't necessarily have a great singing voice. So that worked for me. And that is true. Songwriting is a craft. Singing is a craft. Many can do both. Uh, but there are those that, uh, you know, need some help one way or the other. It was good, too, to hear feedback from some of your other listeners. I always like what, hearing what other folks think. Keep your spurs in good shape. Live long and prosper. Dave McIlvaney. Well, thank you, Dave. And, yes, what Dave says, um, you know, folks, if you're out there, you know, drop me a line. I'm at VigilanteCast, all one word, at gmail.com. Easiest way. Tap a few notes out, and uh, you'll get yourself read. So this is Ranger Gord jumping back in here. I recorded Dave's um, letter not too long after I received it. And since that time has come, there's been some news about Buffy St. Marie, and it hasn't been good. Uh, we have in um, in Canada, the uh, CBC has an investigative show very similar to, oh, I don't know, uh, 60 Minutes or 2020, 
It's called the Fifth Estate. And for whatever reason, they chose to do an expose on Buffy St. Marie, who's in her 80s as of this point in time. Um, despite all of the good work that she has done for Indigenous people and all of the art, uh, apparently there was not enough corruption going on in this country that to investigate. We had to tackle Buffy St. Marie, and apparently they found some birth information that found out that she may not be Indigenous at all. Uh, apparently she wasn't even born Canadian, according to the Fifth Estate story. She was born in Boston to an Italian-American couple. Uh, despite her swarthiness, uh, they claim she is not Indigenous. Uh, the part that does come out is that she did grow up and she was adopted uh, by the St. Marie family in uh, the Capel Valley of Saskatchewan. But uh, they have some things to say about that. I don't really want to go into it. Uh, there's been a lot of Sturm und Drang uh, in Canadian press about this. People are now calling her a pretendian, uh, saying that she is faking her Aboriginal heritage. All I'm going to say to that is... Uh, I believe neither the Fifth Estate or a lot of the uh, pundits understand the concept of Aboriginal adoption. I can't speak to the birthing issue here. Um, they seem to have papers. It is what it is. I just don't seem to understand why the Fifth Estate needs to go after this icon of the Order of Canada who has never been anything but a loyal Canadian and uh, loyal to indigenous folks as well at any rate i just thought i'd let people know about that i'm not putting up any links or in that but uh if people are interested in uh buffy saint marie and what has been said and done uh, there's no end to online comment on this and you can probably go to the cbc website and find the fifth estate story on this i haven't bothered to watch it um, i find the fifth estate in the last 10 years has given itself uh, to schlock. It was at one time a very good investigative journalist program, but it really seems to uh, give itself over to true crime and violence. And now they seem to seem to knock down uh, people who haven't done anything to anyone. So that's what I'm going to say about that. And it certainly does not stop my enjoyment of the music of Buffy St. Mary. So folks, bow to your partner, bow to your all. And that is all for this edition of Prairie Justice. Now we've had three vigilante stories in a row and that should probably tell you that we're going to get into a quarterly situation and we're going to see another return of the Seven Soldiers of Victory. So I believe we're going to be into leading comics number five so I'll be starting to work on that very very soon and that should be out. No, I'm not going to date myself on this. That should be out when it's out and it'll be the same style. Uh, seven episodes that will be coming out in rapid succession after one another. And I have to tell you that the leading comic stories are getting going to get to be a little different, a little less formulaic. So look forward to that, folks. In the corner of a dark barroom Said a low cowboy singing western tune, singing songs that he learned as a child. All about the west back when it was wild. Well, so long, partners. You've been listening to Prairie Justice, the Greg Saunders Vigilante Podcast. All materials used in Prairie Justice are believed to be of fair use and remain the copyright of all copyright holders. Stories, images, and the character of Greg Saunders, the Vigilante, and all other characters used are the property of DC Comics and DC Entertainment. Feedback for Prairie Justice can be left on Facebook under the name Prairie Justice, the Greg Saunders Vigilante Podcast. Email. You can go to vigilantecast at gmail.com. 
website is www.rangergordsroundup, all one word, at .wordpress.com. And we sure hope to see you all back again for another ride with the Cowboy Crusader. Vaya con Dios, compadres, eh? Cause he's the last of the same cowboy.